We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Glad to be here with you. Um, first of all, I just want to thank uh, everyone who's just contributed to this service so far, because everything is just flowing so nicely. I'm connecting it to the things that I'm gonna say and it's just it's beautiful and profound and so i hope you enjoy it as much as i am in my mind right now we're gonna be talking about yes the famous story of daniel and the lion's den and it, that takes place in chapter six of daniel there is way too much in daniel six to fit into a 30-minute sermon and there's a lot of different ideas and notions that we could take from it and learn from it and we could preach sermons on so if i don't touch on something that you see please come and point those things out to me or let's talk about it because there is a lot here but for now, we've talked a lot this series going through Daniel about the notion of beasts and animals and, and humans acting like animals. We've talked about differences and conflicts between uh, the religion of the empire and the law of the land, the way of God. And one of the important things that's been pointed out to us is the idea that the living God of Daniel has a different relationship with creation than the empire, and then often we do. Scripture was written by an animist culture, something largely unfamiliar to us and also unfamiliar to the ways of the empire. We are a deeply disembodied culture reading about a profoundly embodied God and people. And the story that we have been adopted into is one of an incarnate God and a fleshy life for his people. Yes, I did use the word fleshy and it's appropriate, I think. God constantly appears in animal form throughout scripture. I could just name a few of eagles and pigeons or doves, snakes and lions. We could probably just go around and list a bunch of instances where God shows up or is described as an animal throughout scripture. We find strange stories like the one in Daniel 6 of animals behaving uh, in ways that we're not totally familiar with, in ways that are more human. And then we have humans behaving like animals, which we've talked about in previous weeks. We also have some other stories where God shows up and we have speaking donkeys, speaking back to people. Historically, we've seen empires and rulers and families associate themselves with animals um, and various creatures. My own last name, for instance, Lowen, means lion in German, or I think technically it's plural, so it would be lions, but I'm sure somebody here actually speaks German and could correct me if I'm wrong. This is also why I have a tattoo of a lion on my arm. Um, and tattoos could be another example, but we do this in our own way. We associate ourselves and things with animals. Just when I was thinking this morning, we even have like sports teams that we name after animals. The first one that came to mind was the Pittsburgh Penguins, but I don't know if that's a good example because it doesn't really come across like you're laughing, Nadine. Like it doesn't come across as like intimidating, but maybe that's not the point. I don't know. Some of us like to read about um, animal symbolism and we relate ourselves or experiences to animals and animal behavior. We have personality types and quizzes that are based around dogs and otters and beavers and lions. So whether we realize it or not, we're kind of already doing this, um, but we have the capacity and the responsibility to learn from animals and allow them to teach us what it means to be human and live in relationship with creation. The story in Daniel 6 is fascinating. I could spend a couple hours here on this text, but I restrained myself a little bit. Many of us are familiar with the story of Daniel and the lion's den. We heard it growing up in Sunday school or something like that. The way I heard it as a kid was that it was this beautiful story of how God saved Daniel from these ferocious lions. And God was this ultimately powerful being 
who could tame these beasts, so long as you remained faithful to God, you'd be okay. Which is a terrifying notion to me, and it was at the time too. I don't even remember somebody pointing out all the other things that happened in the story. I can only remember that. It was just this spiritual kind of like bypassing moment of, oh, praise the Lord. He has closed the mouths of lions because Daniel prayed three times a day. Heck, later on in my sermon, I'm going to tell you a story of like an instance in real life where animals acted in kind of like this really cool way. And I kid you not, one of the comments in the, on that article online was somebody kind of like attributing that same theology. They're just like, oh, look what God did. I'm like, yeah, but not quite. So we get to be curious about this familiar story today. We're going to just begin at the opening of Daniel 6. So if you follow along with me, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom. And over them were three administrators, one of whom was Daniel. To these the satraps gave account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above the other administrators and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom. But they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. So the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel's entirely blameless. They knew he had done nothing to warrant his arrest or execution according to the law of the empire. So they resort to finding fault with his religion, his language, his spirituality, his way of being that's already been diminished in previous chapters because that is the only way to get him out of the way. So what's their plot going to be? And we continue. It says in verse 7, all the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that, the, that whoever prays to any god or human for 30 days, except to you, O great king, shall be thrown into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. So the administrators and the satraps conspired, and they come to the king and they say, O King Darius, live forever. Anyone who prays to anybody, any god, any person, any idol other than you should be thrown into the den with lions. You, O great and mighty King Darius, should be the only one who receives prayer and worship. You are a god. Anyone who says otherwise or whose way of life does not directly benefit you should be with the lions, the creatures, the less than human animals, the grotesque monsters who consume the flesh of humanity. It's a trap specifically designed to incriminate Daniel and deny the way of the land, the way of God and his people. The laws of the Medes and the Persians is unchanging, as it said. It's meant to disintegrate a spirituality, a religious group, all in pursuit of their own security. It's the theology of the colonists, demonizing and enacting unbreakable laws that oppress a group of people. It begs the question in this story, who is really the beast? Where is the real threat? In the cave with the lions? Or outside the cave 
with dominating and oppressive people and laws. When I was reading this, I kept thinking of other biblical characters who had been tricked and whose lives had been threatened and the grand reversals that often occur throughout scripture. We've seen other dreamers and figures go through stories similar to this. I will not talk about them here, but I just want to plant that seed and have your mind go places and you'll pick things up. So this law that cannot be changed is put in place. And what does Daniel do upon hearing the news? Continues to worship and pray to his God. Of course, those plotting against him are now spying on him and drag him as a convicted criminal to the king. The king has no choice now but to follow the unchanging law and throw Daniel into the den with lions. He tries to find a way to save him, the text says, but he is unable, and he grieves the death of this trusted confidant. A stone is rolled in front of the cave, masked in this shadow of death, but the reversal that is soon to be revealed is that it will become a site of empire-defying life, a signet that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. In this land, we might think of our indigenous brothers and sisters. Nothing might be changed concerning indigenous people, they said. You will become like us. It's the law. Your God is not welcome here. Yet when the king wakes up, he finds Daniel alive and unharmed. How is that possible? How could a man lay down with lions and come up without a scratch? Walter Brueggemann says that the story in Daniel 6 is about the law of God versus the law of the Medes and the Persians. Law against law. The Medes and the Persians convince Darius to enact a law that cannot be changed. When Darius tries to save Daniel, he acknowledges that he is unable because the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. Yet, as Brueggemann points out, this is entirely different to the law of Yahweh. Despite theologies that demand we say otherwise, God is a God of change. Brueggemann calls us back to chapter 2 in Daniel, and we receive this vision that, uh, or this prayer that Daniel says. Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. The story of Daniel in the lion's den reveals that these Medes and Persians do not understand the law of Yahweh, the law of the land. They cannot see the deep and hidden mysteries, the changing of seasons, the God of it all. In fact, anybody who does not follow their laws and their religion is in the wrong and worthy of death. So they enact laws that cannot be changed, sealing the fate of the people of God. They seek to secure their position and throw anyone else who threatens that into a den with the beasts. These lions, they claim, are nothing but ferocious beasts who will kill and destroy Daniel but they do not know that the spirit of the living God is one that has already spoken into creation the goodness of these more than human creatures, that there is another law at work here that will not be destroyed, but is becoming ever more real. Perhaps this is why Daniel is not attacked by the lions. Perhaps the story reveals this about the law of the land and God's creatures that those with unchanging stone-hardened hearts cannot perceive there's an alternative way of living. So when Darius wakes up and he sees that Daniel is alive at the end of the story, he praises Daniel's God and calls him the living God. This living God is not a changeless God like so many of the rulers of Daniel's day, not unlike our own or those of history. 
Every great ruler and nation in power has become obsessed with the notion of becoming unchanging and permanence, simultaneously mixing itself up with the notorious harm and mistreatment of those who are non-compliant to the unchanging laws of the empire, who are the real beasts. Laws around race and gender and sexuality always controlling the bodies of others. Laws around ways of being, spirituality, religion, equality and freedom and agency become a privilege of the few. The living God of Daniel is a revolutionary God, the God of changing seasons, taking down kings and setting up kings. It's the same spirit of God as in the book of Acts, pulling the disciples into revolutionary relationship with the Gentiles and those with whom they had not imagined being in relationship. This God changes and moves and breathes and is charged with loving and compassionate energy, ever drawing us towards the law of the living God who lays us down next to our creaturely kin. This isn't the only time in scripture that talks about people misunderstanding the way of the land. There's actually another story in 2 Kings 17 where God sends lions to attack the people who had moved into God's land. And they did not live according to God's law, the law of the land. The lions are not the beasts that they think they are. The lions are only the enemy of those who have rejected and denied and ignored and devalued the integrity of all of God's creation and God's desire for all people to have a shared life that is marked by love. The vision of Daniel being in the den with lions calls us back again to the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, wherein there's a vision of a different kind of a kingdom, a different way of being that leads to whole life, flourishing life. It says this, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not turn or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The story of the lions in Daniel 6 reveals that the law of the land of Yahweh is more empathetic and compassionate and gentle than we dare imagine. Those creatures that we have turned into enemies will in fact graze together in harmony, no violence. This is a world wherein lions are not the enemy of lambs. These so-called beasts are not our enemy either. Perhaps animals can teach us something about the land, about the law, about how we move in this world and live in relationship with one another and with God. Perhaps our more than human creaturely siblings are not beasts after all. In the 16th century, philosopher and mathematician René Descartes said animals were just automata, red-blooded machines without thoughts or wishes. And if you're like me or you've like, had conversations with anybody at some point in your life, you've probably heard or thought of animals as subhuman, inferior, not as valuable. You might even call them beasts. We fear bears and crocodiles and panthers and lions and all sorts of seemingly vicious creatures. Yet it perplexes our imagination when these supposedly subhuman, non-feeling creatures behave in ways that match or transcend our own human nature. The story of Daniel reveals that the lions weren't really beasts to be feared by Daniel. 
The irony is that the Medes and Persians were the beasts shredding apart the life of Daniel and anybody who worshipped his god. In the end, it's the Medes and the Persians who were consumed by the lions, for they do not have the knowledge of God in this land. These creatures are revealing a hidden thing about the life-giving God. For some examples, we know that rats have actually been shown to feel vicarious suffering and deny food when another rat is in pain. Chimpanzees are also known and have been seen to come to the side of other weeping chimpanzees when they're sad or they're grieving. And same with humans, they will also go to the side of humans. But I also found a very cool few stories of animals showing empathy that I want to share with you. Um, so the next one, perfect, yes. So the first one is about Washoe. Some of you may have heard of Washoe. I had not prior to this, but it was a very sweet story. So in the 1970s, there is a, a chimp, a chimp named Washoe, this is Washoe, who became the first non-human to learn to communicate using American Sign Language. She was taught 350 signs by behavioral scientists and was soon able to construct basic sentences. Washoe, then 17, had grown close to a pregnant volunteer named Cat Beach, that's Cat Beach there, who worked at her university home in Washington. The chimp loved Cat and used to point to her growing belly and say, baby. She'd been pregnant herself, but sadly had lost both babies. But Cat's growing bump fascinated her and then, one day, Kat abruptly stopped visiting, and Washoe was clearly puzzled and upset. By the time she returned several weeks later, Washoe gave Kat the cold shoulder. So Kat made her apologies to Washoe and decided to tell her the truth, that she had lost her baby too. So she signed, my baby died. Washoe stared at her, then looked down, and she finally peered back into Kat's eyes again and carefully signed, cry, touching her cheek and drawing her finger down the path a tear would make on a human, even though chimpanzees do not shed tears. And when Cat prepared to leave for the day, Washoe signed, please person hug. Washoe was capable of understanding the pain. There are also documented stories of elephants finding people who were lost. Uh, in one case, an old woman who couldn't see well had gotten lost and was found the next day with elephants guarding her. They had encased her in a sort of a cage of branches to protect her from hyenas around. Elephants also have some of the most elaborate group rituals kind of depicted here. They've been known to bury loved ones with leaves and grass or keeping vigil by the body. And just as humans visit the grave sites of, of our loved ones, elephants visit the bones of dead elephants for years to come. They'll touch the body of the deceased elephant, examining the body, and they even can kind of cry. It's a deeply embodied act for them. Yet, they don't just do this for other elephants. Conservationist Lawrence Anthony developed a reputation as the elephant whisperer. He had the ability to calm down African elephants, and he worked in a reserve where he spent his time trying to calm down elephants that were unhappy about having been relocated there. The elephants wanted to leave, but he had managed to keep them in place, knowing that they would be killed if they left the protected area. Years later, Anthony died of a heart attack. He had not been in the reserve or seen the elephants for one and a half years when it happened. The elephants, somehow sensing that Anthony had passed, left the reserve and traveled for 12 hours to his home to pay their respects. Just as an elephant will mourn the dead of its own species, they came out for Anthony. In total, two full herds of elephants came in a procession to his home 
with each one coming separately. This massive group of gigantic elephants waited on Anthony's property for two days to mourn his death before they headed back home. The last story I have for us is about a lion. <laughs> in 2005, there was a 12-year-old girl near Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, um, and she had been dragged out into the wild and beaten by seven men who were trying to convince her to marry them. This is obviously shocking and odd for us, but according to the United Nations, 70% of marriages in that area start with a young girl being abducted, uh, dragged out into the middle of nowhere and forced into a life of servitude. All of that would have happened to this girl too if it wasn't for a group of lions. When the girl started crying, a nearby pride of lions heard her and rushed to her rescue. The animals pounced on the men and chased them away, saving her before they could do anything to her. But that's not it. If they had just attacked the men, it could have easily just been a random lion attack, but they stayed with the girl. The lions waited with the scared child for about 12 hours, protecting her in case anybody came back, until her family finally found her. And when they did, the lions walked back into the jungle, leaving her safe. These don't sound like the beasts that the Medes and the Persians say that they are, at least to me. The real beasts are those who deny the dignity and the humanity and the validity and value of others. They are the ones throwing people into pits with lions. But the spirit of the living God is in those with hearts of flesh, human and more than human creatures, always leading us towards a vision of shared life that is shrouded in hospitality and compassion and mercy and grace. If you do not follow the law of the generous, life-giving, and ever-emancipatory God, then you will find other creatures to be a threat. But in God's land, there is no competition. There is no fear of the other, of the unknown. It is a land defined by love and empathy and curiosity and wonder, for the way of the Spirit is not coercive, but welcomes us all with a loving embrace. I think it's important that we ask ourselves what leads to the pursuit of the unchanging, the totalizing law, or simply an unchanging perspective. I think at least in part, it's anxiety. Anxiety of the unknown, the unfamiliar, and the uncomfortable. Because every one of us, in some way, is holding on to something that we're trying to protect. We're all seeking safety and belonging, eagerly seeking to be loved. If I'm honest, I see it in myself, how I control myself and my future. I am a highly anxious person and often my anxiety leads me to find 146 solutions to either hypothetical or very real problems. I'm quickly processing how I can secure the thing that I hold dear, the thing that I fear is being threatened. Despite the out of control nature of some elements of life, I will quickly grab on and not let go. And I, I know we can all find ourselves in spaces like that. Taken to extreme examples, yes, it leads to harm and abuse and totalizing laws that diminish life. But the way of the living God is one where lions can lay down with lambs, where I don't have to be afraid of you and you don't have to be afraid of me. It's a reversal of what the Medes and the Persians believe. It's a reversal of the anxious way of empire, anxiety around what happens to me if I make space for you, if I let go of control and become curious about the unfamiliar. But the way of the living God, as seen in Daniel, is one where the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the living God. 
the spirit which leads us into shared life. The spirit in the lion is the same as is in the lamb. Those with hard hearts cannot see this way, becoming the very beasts they so fear are waiting for them out in the wild creation. As Mark Wallace, author of When God Was a Bird, a, a book on Christian animism says, God or spirit enfleshes itself within everything that grows, walks, flies, and swims in and over the great gift of creation. We are the ones who created division, not God. Division that says your body and the bodies of others don't matter, that they're inferior. Division that says who is superior to who, which creatures are inferior to which, which religions are demonic, who is a beast, the law of the living God, the way of the spirit engages with the entire living world as related, connected, and sentient, not disembodied and inferior. I was listening to a lecture this week from Munther Isaac. He's a professor, theologian, and Lutheran minister in Palestine. And he was supposed to be here in Calgary this past week for the annual Downey lectures at Ambrose but he ended up staying home to be with his family during the violence that's been happening in Israel. Munther Isaac is literally living with this very, very real and very threatening, violent conflict of dominant groups trying to decide who can live where and who belongs, uh, who the land belongs to. There's violence and harm and control and fear. And he talks about Israel and the fight over who should possess the holy land and who it belongs to. And he had this to say from a lecture that I was listening to. The land belonged to God, not to any nation or religion. Yet at the same time, we all belong to this land, God's land. This is why I believe and continue to promote the principle of a shared land. I believe in sharing the land, not dividing the land. Sharing the land means that all the dwellers of this land share the land and its resources equally and have the same rights regardless of their ethnicity or religion. A shared, land approaches, a shared land approach emphasizes that there are no second-class citizens in this land. No one is marginalized in God's vision of the land. Sharing the land, I believe, is not simply one option forward. It is the only way forward. He ends his talk by saying that we have a hope we have hope because there is an empty tomb. We have hope because Christ's resurrection is real, because there is an end to death and suffering and division and hostility and violence. Isaac's perspective on the Holy Land teaches us all will live in the land in accordance with the way of the living God that is gentle and abundant. And some of us continue, need to continue to learn from the land, the more than human creatures, the indigenous people who can teach us about this living God and how we ourselves can flourish as human creatures. But the invitation is there. We do not need to anxiously hold on to our individual sense of security when we are all filled with the knowledge of the living God. For the benediction today, let me pray this prayer. This was actually written by Nikayla a couple years ago or something like that, and it's been edited a little bit to fit today. So this is from her. To the Holy Spirit of life that animates each of us here, thank you for the wild air we breathe. We inhale life that comes from beyond us. You call this grace. 
We exhale the breath that no longer serves us. You call this surrender. Thank you for this dance of our lungs that even the trees and the wind and the sky keep rhythm to. Thank you for the beating of our hearts. Badum, badum, badum. Thank you for this music we cannot hear, but which we all dance to together. Thank you for the rivers that hydrate us, the rivers that course like arteries and veins across this earthly body we inhabit together. These rivers of light which course from your dwelling place. Thank you for the connections between us that we cannot see, the way our nervous systems communicate with one another in a language not our own. Thank you for the ways our brains release endorphins, facilitating a sense of belonging to one another. Thank you for the connections between us and all living beings and all dying beings. Thank you for the microbial world that sustains us, which we cannot see. Thank you for the topsoil that works tirelessly to turn death into life. Thank you that all of our food and everything we eat and wear and build our shelters with comes ultimately from that dark soil of harsh mercy. Thank you for the worms and the fungi that teach us that everything can and will be broken down and that nothing lasts forever and that nothing stays dead. And so thank you for resurrection, spirit of life, Thank you for becoming embodied as a creature like us. If you could be contained in a human body, inhaling and exhaling, eating and drinking, may we see the holiness of bodies that breathe and eat and drink, shiver and sweat, live and die and live again. You promised our ancestors that one day you'd wipe away every tear. You promised that lions would lay down with lambs you promised our ancestors that weapons would be melted into gardening tools and that there would be healing and feasting and intimacy. Thank you, creaturely creator and life sustainer, that we don't wait for that final day. Surely it has already begun. You rose up from your own grave, announcing the beginning of the end. You call this the gospel. The wiping of tears has already begun. The great table is set. Amen. Awakened Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honour that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.